This is a podcast by the Business Times. Welcome to Podcasts by the Business Times. I'm Chris Lim, and I'll be hosting this episode with my colleague Gail Go. Hi, that's me. So, tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, etc., have become so successful that the way they operate has spilled over into other sectors looking to emulate tech brands' speed to market and relentless innovation. Digital government is one such area in Singapore, with HelpGov and COVID-19 vaccine appointment system being two specific examples. Now, helping us make sense of how modern tech practices can help governments and their people is our guest Lee Hong Yi, director of Open Government Products at GovTech Singapore. Welcome to the show, Hong Yi. Hey, Chris. Hey, Gail. Thanks for having me on. Hong Yi, thanks for joining us today. Now, can you share with us in a nutshell what is GovTech? And specifically, what is the Open Government Products division within GovTech? Yeah, sure. So GovTech is the Government Technology Agency of Singapore. Basically, we're responsible for all of the government's different IT systems. So this includes things like public-facing websites, so if you're not like booking badminton courts or things like that, but as well as a lot of the internal systems, such as our government databases, email systems. If you ever have a sort of application or something in government, the case management systems are things that are built by GovTech. Open Government Products, or OGP, as we like to call ourselves, we're a sort of new experimental product development team in the government. We're made up mostly of engineers, designers, and data scientists who want to build technology for the public good, so to speak. As Chris mentioned, right, there are a lot of efforts for the wider public sector in order to figure out what modern tech practices can be adopted into existing government agencies. OGP takes a sort of converse approach where we're built from the ground up to function like a modern tech company and then try to figure out what public sector problems we can handle. And like our core mission basically is to sort of build tech products and hopefully good ones. But in addition to that, our role here is not just about like delivering products, but it's about sort of helping to identify and propagate what we think the most effective tech practices are to the rest of government. So we experiment with not just new technologies, but new organizational design practices like management and performance evaluation and things like that. We test them out and we try to exemplify the best of these practices in our own operation. And then we try to sort of evangelize what we think are the most effective ones to the rest of government to help sort of kick off that digitization, if that makes sense. So what exactly are the best modern technology practices that can move the needle for digital government? I mean, are frameworks such as product, design thinking and scrum among them? So there are a lot of different specific techniques that have varying degrees of applicability in the government. In my opinion, the specific choice of framework isn't really as important as sort of like getting the key underlying principles, right? So there's Scrum where whether you do like one-week sprints, two-week sprints, or like longer sprints or things like that, design thinking and like specific design process, it's sort of almost irrelevant compared to having the underlying goal that I think we need to move on. And to sort of like make this a bit more concrete, in Singapore specifically, I think the top three things that would move the needle very much in government would be in terms of like more closely tracking outcomes and feedback, being more willing to fail fast, as well as sort of like restructuring how we do our, our organizations to optimize for creativity, even if that means relinquishing a little bit of control. So one of the key differences in tech, and this is why like I don't think the sort of specific practices really make that much difference, is because tech is fundamentally, almost by definition, one, very complicated. That's why it's new technology. And two, it's very exploratory. That's why it's new technology, which means that no one really has the right answer of the box and no one really has the experience to get the answer right on the first try. No matter how smart you are, no matter how many years of experience you have building government systems or building IT systems, every new tech system is a sort of act of research. And so no one knows the answer, no one gets it right first try, and no one person can understand the whole system. So you really need to like, change your fundamental approach to this. 
good tech companies, they're less like sort of well-executed, very precise artisanal works. And they're much more like big intellectual monumental buildings that are built on top of these hills of even larger failed companies and ideas, if that makes sense. So if you're looking at what we do, right, the first point on this in terms of like tracking outcomes and feedback, it's something that seems that we should obviously already be doing. Obviously, the government tracks outcomes, right? How could we be a government which doesn't track outcomes? But you'd be surprised at like how much of government decision making, it's not so much that we sort of sit down and like do a very, very thorough scientific research analysis. A lot of it comes down to sort of like we make a gut call. I mean, it seems right based on experience, based on what our leaders know, we make a call and then we sort of move forward from there. So for a lot of things, this works pretty well. You know, our government leaders have a lot of experience in the field. It's often better to be more proactive and move on more things rather than be sort of over-analytical and get paralyzed by trying to make a very, very good decision on one thing. But the problem, again, when it comes to tech is that because it's complicated and always changing, no one has a good intuition for it. No one is born knowing how a website should look or no one's born knowing like what a good app should be. And even if you did, what a good website is here in 2021 is very, very different from a website 10 years ago in like, you know, 2012 or so, and which is even more different from a website 10 years before that. And so the way this is handled in the tech industry is you sort of assume from the get-go that, yeah, you're going to put your best idea forward the best that you can, but you assume that it's going to be wrong in some way. You're going to have a whole bunch of things to correct and course correct in order to get it right. And no one basically shoots a hole in one. And so let's say you launch a website, right? You have some new initiative that the government has, whether it's a policy or a subsidy or like some program or an event or something like that, and you launch a website for it. You need to track basic things like how many people are visiting it, how many people actually click through to sort of read the FAQ that you spent all this time writing. If you have a form on the website, how many people are actually completing it, things like that. I remember we were looking at one of the old government websites. I think this was the old My Career's Future website. They've dramatically improved it since then. But when we looked at it, we actually found that, you know, even though it technically existed, I think only like one in 12 people actually successfully completed the application on the website because building a good user interface is hard. And because there's a lot of steps involved in the job application, a lot of people were sort of falling off halfway and only like one in 12 people actually sort of successfully made it to the end to make a job application. Now, once you looked at the data and are aware of this, you can then trace down and figure out, all right, it's not that the whole idea is bunk. It's just that, oh, this button here is confusing. We need to recolor that. We need to rename this term. We need to reorder the way they're showing things on the page so that people understand the flow a bit more intuitively and it dramatically improves the outcomes. You have a good idea, but you'll always need to course correct. For the next two points, like the next idea I think that is sort of fundamental in government is failing fast. So just as much as we need to track outcomes, one of the key concepts that we have in Singapore government that works fairly poorly is that we have this idea that we'll plan, plan really, really well and we'll plan super hard and we'll execute one time and get it done and get it done properly. And that seems like a good idea for something that, you know, you have experience with and you can sort of like prep and make a good performance for. But when it comes to tech, like, for example, the stuff that we're building for COVID management and things like that, literally no one's done it before. Not just no one in the government, but like no one in the world has built anything like this before. Because this is a novel problem and this is a novel set of technologies that we have today in a novel situation. And so our first idea will suck and your first iteration will suck. And in fact, your first several will probably not work very well. And so you need to sort of change the perspective from this being like a planning process where you need to plan harder to make something successful and treat it much more like an exploratory process where you're going to try a whole bunch of different things. You identify the ones which are working, the ones which don't, and then you prune the ones which aren't as promising. And then you double down on the things that are working well now with more experience and more knowledge about how to get it even better, if that makes sense. Some great insights there, Hongyi. So what about your third point? So my third point is basically, it's not so much about the individual practice, but like how the organization is structured. So what I found is that our government is, is designed to optimize for sort of consistency and control. It's designed so that you have a couple of hopefully very smart people at the center of government, and then they have a lot of authority and a lot of command over and view over the system so that they can make good decisions and make them happen very quickly and happen sort of like as they want them to happen. 
And this works very well if you have basic ideas that you need to execute very well. So for example, like vaccinations, right? You need everyone to get vaccinated. We've got the vaccine supply. We need everyone to get two jabs. Let's make that happen. The idea is very easy to wrap your head around, but like the execution is very complicated. And so you need a lot of like very precise command and control to make sure everything works very well. The problem with this is that you're basically limiting your organizational intelligence to that of like the key decision makers, because it's structured like a body, right? Where you have all your nerves and muscles and all the feedback flows to the brain, and then they make a call and then, you know, it goes back down to the rest of the body. And that's the limit to your organizational intelligence. And so as you get to more and more complicated things, for example, like technology, right? Even building a basic website, no one person, no matter how smart they are, is probably going to have the talent on the UX and UI design, the front-end engineering, the back-end engineering, the production deployments, the sort of like cybersecurity and all these other different things. There's a whole bunch of different dimensions on building even a simple website such that even one brain, even if it's a very smart one, can't handle all of it in one place. And so a lot of tech, it's much more about giving up a little bit of consistency and control in order to gain creativity and autonomy. So you're structuring your organization as opposed to structuring like a small decision-making team with a very large soft set of arms and legs. The arms and legs in tech are actually fairly straightforward. You know, you type the code on your keyboard or you, you drag the mouse to make your designs. You don't need that many arms and legs. But the difficulty is knowing what the good designs are, knowing what the good engineering architecture is, and like actually implementing it in a way that has all the nuance to handle all the edge cases. And so you're designing the organization much more like a brain rather than a body. For example, I don't hire designers to tell them what to design. I hire designers because I'm not good at design and I need them to tell me what good designs should be. Similarly, like, you know, in terms of engineering, like I might have a bit of engineering experience myself, but I don't hire engineers to tell them to build things in this particular way. I hire engineers because I have a vague notion that this is probably a, an area we should look at. And I hire them to help me figure out what the best way to build something is. So the more you're able to trust and delegate different people to have subspecialties and domain knowledge in each of these areas and like trust their inputs and take their input as a, as a whole, even if each individual person may not have as much expertise as across everything, the organization as a whole, the effective organizational level intelligence increases. And that's sort of what you're optimizing for when you're doing tech. So even at the cost of consistency and control, you want to optimize the amount of effective brain power you have attacking the surface of the problem, as opposed to having a very small decision-making team with a very consistent execution. If you like what you're hearing so far, please subscribe to BT Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify and like us and give us a rating. And now back to our conversation with Lee Hong Yi, Director of Open Government Products at GovTech Singapore, about how the best tech practices can help digital government. Now, before the break, you know, Hong Yi was telling us you know, what GovTech does, what the Open Government Products division does in particular, how it's structured from the ground up as a modern tech company so that it can the starting point is modern tech practices and three key points. The first being monitoring outcomes, the second being failing fast, and the third is the pros and cons of centralized decision making. Well, now it's time to dig a little further. I'll leave that to Gail. Thanks for that, Chris. Hongi, I, a couple of things that you said earlier jumped out at me. You talked about building OGP from the ground up like a tech company, even though you're a government division. You also spoke a lot about failing fast, maybe not getting it completely right the first time, but being able to iterate your products, learn and make them better along the way. I did want to ask you, though, a little bit more about the differences in context when it comes to the public sector. And in particular, I wanted to ask you, how do you balance speed of development with expectations? Because you work in government, and that's a field with famously high expectations. And I think it's fair to say, especially in Singapore. Now, some Singaporeans might expect government products to be launched 100% complete with no mistakes. 
And of course, the danger of that approach is you waste months or even years building something that isn't what people want or doesn't really get the job done. So I want to ask you if you have examples of how your decision has balanced the benefits of agile development with expectations of completeness from the public. Thanks, Gil. Yeah, uh, I don't actually see it as a trade-off. I actually think it's precisely because we have such high expectations for the government that we need to take a more sort of agile, iterative approach. And this might seem counterintuitive, but think of it like putting on a performance in a theater or something like that. If you want to have a really good performance opening night, you want to make sure that you've rehearsed like crazy beforehand. You want to make sure that you've worked all the kinks out of the script, all the operational details, like costume changes, whatever be run through. You definitely want to make sure that by the time you go out on opening night, there's like days and weeks and months of like practice and getting it right before then so that on launch day, everything goes smoothly. And that's sort of the way I see agile development. It's not about doing crappy work in public. It's really about like making sure you are flexible enough to have practiced and iterated a lot so that when you go public, everything works really smoothly. I think some of this confusion comes about because there's a confusion between the very public launching and failing of the tech industry where there are a lot of companies coming in and out, you know, some with great ideas, some with terrible ideas. And so they sort of fail and they sort of see that and think, oh, that's what Agile does. You know, Agile creates a lot of ideas, but a lot of failing ideas as well. It can, but that's actually different from the process that the companies use internally to mitigate that risk. So it is precisely because the tech industry is such a risky industry. If you look at the practices of tech companies that they use internally, it's about risk mitigation and a very effective way of risk mitigating in a very risky environment. So you want to protect your billion-dollar investments. So that's why you do things like, for example, user testing. You use a lot of analytics to track what your product's doing. You pivot quickly if something's going wrong. You iterate very, very quickly. You test with small groups, you know, you use cameras to do eye tracking to see when you show someone a web page, what they're looking at on the page so that you can correct accordingly, make sure they're looking at the right things. This is all risk mitigation precisely because you're in a risky environment. And that's actually a lot of what Agile is. Agile isn't about like just sort of doing whatever and hoping and saying you'll fix it later. Agile is about quickly churning through all the cases of how things could go wrong so that by the time you actually are going to launch something, it works very well. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I, I can dive into a bit more about like, you know, what our team does specifically, if that might help. Yes, please go ahead. We've been lucky enough so far that a lot of our products have been quite successful, right? So if you, you, know, you look at our product page, most of the products that we've launched have quite a lot of users, have quite a lot of impact, and users are very happy with them. This is not an accident because what you don't see are sort of like literally the dozens and dozens of other products that we've tried, tested, and sort of discarded on the way to finding these. So the first thing is that we don't assume that every idea that the team comes up with needs to go public and will be successful. We have a hackathon every year. And when I say hackathon, I don't just mean like sort of a one, two day thing where you piece together some demos and, you know, you celebrate and you go along your way. We actually set aside the whole month of January. For January, we try to put a pause on all non-critical work and the team goes out. We visit hospitals, we visit schools. I think we visited the meteorological center one time to sort of really get a sense of like all the scope of public sector problems. And then we come back and for the rest of the month, we build new ideas and then we present them at the end of the month to the whole team as well as some of our leadership. And that's actually where a lot of the ideas the team come from to sort of give you a sense of scope. We have about 40 something people on the team. For 2020, we had 28 different projects in our hackathon. And of the 28 different projects, and that's just a subset of the projects that people started and discarded at the start of the hackathon. And at the end of it, as of today, of the 28 different projects, seven of them are now live production apps. And that's not counting the dozens that we actually thought had potential, but we just didn't have resources to do. 
So you sort of look at the success, right? Where you look at the outcomes of the products, it seems like, oh yes, you're choosing good products. But actually the reason why the products that we launched are doing fairly well is because these were like the best of 10 ideas that we came up with and didn't just like come up with the idea, but actually tested and iterated. And at every stage along the process, you know, sort of drops off, you see whether or not build a prototype, whether or not anyone wants to use it. Maybe people start using it, but it doesn't grow as quickly as you like, or you start using it and you start figuring out some problems. So you have a very big pool of potential projects just to start with. So that's just in terms of idea generation. In terms of going on further from there, like, for example, if you're launching a big policy like vaccine.gov.sg, right? What we do is that in order to get that working right, it's not that we had this brilliant design and just launched it to the whole country. We did a whole bunch of focus groups. You know, we tested it. We had UI designers design a bunch of different UI designs. We tested it with a bunch of different audiences. We showed it to friends, family, uh, students, uh, the elderly, working adults, and we you know, asked them what they thought. And we saw where people got stuck. And then when we did that, when we first started having people do get vaccinations, we didn't open up again to the whole country. We opened up to like, you know, small groups, like people who are high priority as and the elderly to get their vaccinations first. And then we looked at that feedback. We saw people were using other website. We saw people were having problems. We saw where it was getting stuck. And then we cost corrected as we went along the way. So very simple example. When we first launched the website, people were all crowding around the polyclinics and the vaccination centers were actually very underutilized because you know people are familiar with polyclinics. And so when they go to a platform to book an appointment, they'll pick something they know, right? And the problem with that was that we would have people you know, waiting four to six weeks in order to get an appointment for the vaccine. And then when they got there, they had to wait like three or four hours in line because the polyclinics were so overburdened in order to get their jab. Whereas at the vaccination centers, you could just walk in and out within half an hour and you know basically have no problem the very next day. Once we realized this, we modified our user interface. We added these nice green tags at the top to the vaccination centers, which said, you know, shorter waiting times or like earlier appointments, something like basically to nudge people that, hey, these places, if you click on this option, you will have an earlier appointment. You will have to wait less time and there'll be less hassle. It's a really small change, but it made a huge difference in terms of like moving the mass of people to where appointments were available. And even though from an app perspective, it's just like a little tag. From a system perspective, it dramatically changed how the flow of people went and gave everyone overall a much smoother experience for their vaccinations instead of everyone crowding a couple of polyclinics. I'd like to change gears for my last question. On the topic of change management, or what some might call digital inclusivity, how, how do you balance rapid iteration with the comfort level of the populace? Because your rapid iteration does give you that time to market and that constant iterative improvement but a system that keeps evolving may confuse some citizens and risks leaving them behind. I mean, not everyone's comfortable with a tech preview or beta label, especially if you're older. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, this is something that you see every time, like, Facebook changes their interface, right? Like, Facebook changes their UI a little bit and everyone goes mad. You know, when Google changes their logo or changes their apps, you know, it's probably all the internet talks about for like a day or so. And so there's definitely a lot that you need to do in terms of doing change management. But actually, like what I found, and you know, especially the last year has shown, inclusivity requires digitizing. It requires getting things on board. So even for, let's say, people who are less tech savvy or the elderly or people who are just busy and don't have time to learn all these new systems, right? You need to get people on board. You need to start using things like Zoom in all their video calls. You need to start doing home deliveries so that people don't have to go out. If you're talking about like things which confuse the system, like it's true that poorly built digital systems can be very confusing. And I think that's sort of like bad CGI. You know, people complain about not writing CGI in movies, but that's only because when you notice it, that means that it was done poorly, generally speaking. Actually, when you've done something well, the CGI isn't even noticeable. And that's the same true for digitization. As a very concrete example, let's just take something as simple as forms, right? Everyone's familiar with that sort of you know, crappy uh, government website where you try to apply for some grant or scheme or program or something. And like, you know, you hated clicking the buttons and it just didn't work. And the page wouldn't reload and it tell you, please don't use the back button and things like that. And that's an example of it can go poorly. 
But actually, there are dozens and dozens of systems that we've brought online very smoothly and actually a lot more intuitive now that we've digitized them. So looking at paper forms, you know, it's true that digital forms can be confusing, but paper forms can be just as confusing. And so you need to come up with solutions. Digitization doesn't just mean taking something and putting it on a computer. It means making something easier overall. Example we said earlier, like help.gov that we're working on. You know, yes, there's previously this process where, you know, you can email a government agency, try to get an answer to a question, and they'll reply to you within seven days of like telling you who you should ask for that question. There's no wrong door policy, which is really good, but it still means you have to bounce back and forth for like possibly a couple of weeks in order to get an answer. By digitizing it, not just by bringing it online, but by making a platform where people can quickly get referred to the right agency to ask a question and the agencies can sort of answer them and see what people are coming about, you actually shorten that time and you tighten that connection between people and the response that they need. And that's an example of how you get digital inclusivity precisely because you're digitizing properly. You can talk about how for mass collection, when we're distributing them, we put them in vending machines as opposed to giving them out by hand. And vending machines were a digitization approach that make things a lot simpler. If you get your WhatsApp updates every day from the government or what's going on, that's one of the systems that we built. And that's a very big example of how building a digital system meant that everyone could stay informed about what's going on rather than just people who are sort of in the know or, or read particular websites. You're right. At the end of the day, there are going to be people not comfortable with like beta tech preview tags. And so what you do is you make sure you have your specific audiences. So you tap on your most tech savvy, your most experimental, your most sort of like gung-ho people to try out your new stuff. And then once you've sort of worked it out and got it all smooth and got it all working, that's when you go to the public. And that's sort of like how you balance digital inclusivity together with making progress. It is not a trade-off. It is a goal of digital progress to include everyone. Thank you, Hongi. And I especially love how you've shown us how well-designed technology can overcome a lot of the reservations that hold us back from going digital. I mean, we were worried about not being able to meet public expectations, but you showed us that daring to fail fast actually helps us meet those expectations better. Then we asked you about digital inclusivity and the fear of leaving people behind. But again, you showed us that well-designed technology can actually make interfaces and processes more user-friendly and inclusive, not less. So fantastic insights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Gail. This, this is really fun. We have been discussing how the best tech practices can apply in digital government with our guest, Lee Hong Yi, Director of Open Government Products at GovTech Singapore. And that's a wrap for this podcast by The Business Times. But don't forget to subscribe to BT Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you like us, go ahead and give us a rating. That was an SBH podcast by The Business Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3. Any financial or investment information in this podcast is for use in Singapore only and is intended to be for your general information. Any particular investment or decision should only be made after consulting with a fully qualified financial advisor.